I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 391 for July 30th, 2012. The Jazz or Bust Tour is on hiatus for a few weeks while I'm here in State College, Pennsylvania, visiting my kids. I actually took last week off from the show and spent a lot of time with them, which is great, and I'm going to be spending even more time with them this coming up week, which I'm very excited about. I've spent a ridiculous number of hours watching my older son play baseball, uh, which has been very cool. He's on a He was, until today, on a tournament team, and uh, today they finally uh, went out of their final tournament, but uh, it was very, very exciting and really fun to, to get to watch him uh, grow up as a baseball player. Very, very cool stuff. I am still posting the occasional diary at jasoncrane.org, and once the tour begins again in earnest, I'll be back to doing that every single day. The tour will start off again on August 31st in Detroit at the Detroit Jazz Festival. Very excited about that. Going to be there for Labor Day weekend and then, generally speaking, heading west uh, through the you know northern Rocky Mountain states into the Pacific Northwest, down the coast to California, into the Southwest, and onward. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to get back on tour. While I'm taking a break, though, this entire time I'm taking a break, in fact, and even after I'm back out on the road again, I'll be bringing you interviews from the first part of the tour. Today's show features Doug Richards, who founded the jazz program at Virginia Commonwealth University. More about that in a minute, but first, thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to today's show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo, and to Rob Grendel, who designed the Jazz or Bust logo. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. You can, as I mentioned, go see the diaries at jasoncrane.org, and there's also poetry there. And, of course, you can subscribe to The Jazz Session in iTunes or using an RSS reader, or you can listen to all of the shows right there at the website at thejazzsession.com. A great way to stay in touch with what's happening on The Jazz Session is to join the mailing list. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the mailing list link at the top. And if you'd like to support what's happening on the show, there are two ways to do that. One is to become a recurring member, either monthly or yearly, by going to thejazzsession.com slash join. You can do that. There's a membership at the monthly level starting at 10 bucks a month and at the yearly level starting at $110 a year. Or you can make a one-time donation to the tour and get the thank you gifts that come with that at thejazzsession.com slash tour. The last few shows have featured people from Richmond, Virginia, a very, very robust community for jazz. And part of the reason that the community is so rich where jazz is concerned is because of today's guest, Doug Richards. Uh, several people, when I got to Richmond, several of the musicians told me, you really should talk to Doug because he's one of the guys who helped make this town what it is musically and certainly the program at Virginia Commonwealth University what it is musically. So we'll hear some music from... One of the bands that Doug conducted. Now, Doug had a professional band 
uh, called the Great American Music Ensemble, and he gave me a copy of that disc, and I have never successfully been able to burn it. I've tried many times on different players while I've been traveling. Um, but I did manage to get some tracks from one of the large ensembles that uh, Doug directed from Virginia Commonwealth University. So we'll hear some music from that and my conversation with Doug Richards. My guest is Doug Richards. Uh, he's a, a composer and arranger and conductor, band leader. Uh, he also founded the Virginia Commonwealth University Jazz Studies Program. And uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you here. Oh. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's an honor, Jason. Yeah, and I, I, I guess I should be reversing that and saying thank you for having me, since, I, in fact, I'm the one on the road and you're welcoming me into your home. And oh, I very much appreciate what that. What a so. delight. <laughs> what a delight and pleasure. Would you uh, just give people a, a little thumbnail sketch before we get into the era when you actually founded the program in 1980 of what you had been doing before that? Oh, yeah, real, real fast. I was born in Pittsburgh in 1947. I grew up in the immediate area for about, you know, and then at 18, I was a trumpet player and got interested in music, sort of through the back door, you know, no musicians in the family, so to speak. Heard a Glenn Miller thing, of all things, that had a Harmon muted trumpet solo on there. I never heard any sound like that when I was about 12 years old and said, wow, I love that sound. What do you say? I want to do that sound. And so I got a trumpet and, you know, and, of course, that thing led to, wow, led to the Basie Band, and then it led to the Ellington Band, and then it led to Miles and Diz and, you know, et cetera. Et cetera. Sure. And so then I went to the Kenton Clinics a few times when I was a kid, uh, uh, Michigan State and uh, University of Illinois, and met some Berkeley people and played in some good bands and arranging class with Alfred Nelson and blah, wow. blah, blah. And then I went to Berkeley and had a you know, marvelous experience there. I went there in 65, and I was one of those creatures that stayed and graduated. Uh, <laughs> why? I don't know. But anyhow, I ended up doing it. And uh, so I was there for four years and discovered while I was there, though I went there thinking I was going to be some kind of a trumpet player, but uh, discovered my 
talents laid more in the, you know, the writing arena. And, uh, so that's what, uh, I did. And when I left Berkeley, you know, you know, the horns gone into mothballs. And so, uh, uh, and then, um, I ended up uh, teaching in a school to beat the draft in Vietnam because I was opposed. It was either uh, going to jail, going to Canada, or, uh, you know, uh, or teaching school. And so I said, well, what the hell? You yeah. know, I'll be a school. T- I was never an ed major. I was a composition major. Right? Sure. So uh, I ended up teaching in a junior high and said, you know, I was totally this unorthodox creature because I hated school. I mean, <laughs> like I couldn't get, wait to get out of the damn place. And um, there are many for whom teaching in a junior high would actually come in second to Vietnam. To uh, <laughs> say on that, well, anyhow, it it. By some odd chance, it worked, and I had a lot of success, and uh, and really dug it. I, it was a very uh, open-minded uh, group of people who uh, ran the school. Where and was this in the country? This was in Norwell, Massachusetts, okay. uh, slightly south uh, of Boston. I should say, you know, maybe about fifteen miles south of Quincy. Just okay, you know, and uh, so. Uh, it, it was a it was a great environment for me, and uh, and then I ended up uh, meeting my the woman who became my first wife, and and she was from Florida, and I've been in the North my entire you know at that point twenty four years, and I went down to visit her, left Logan Airport with about twenty degree below chill factor, <laughs> and was next day I was playing touch football with you know, just a <laughs> pair of cutoffs on on the on the beach, and I said, man. Sold. I'm out of here. <laughs> and so I've been working my way back north ever since. So, uh, <laughs> and then I ended up getting, uh, 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 a few other teaching gigs along the way to survive. Um, I was teaching in an adjunct capacity in Atlanta before getting this gig here at VCU. I was at Georgia State and Georgia Tech and, you know, music director of Six Flags over Georgia and writing music and writing, you know, uh, commercials and uh, horn backgrounds for you know, Clarence Carter and God knows what else I was wow. doing back then. But uh, anyhow, lo and behold, I got this gig because uh, a former high school band director who loved my marching band arrangements, I, I, I was charging i think 70 bucks a chart where i'd write the chart and uh write the parts and rehearse the band but i had a wife and two little kids and so i needed to eat sure and so uh, uh, he was a graduate assistant at vcu and there was a theory slash stage band as they called it back then gig open um the guy that had had a the uh the gig uh, was up for tenure and he and his wife, so I'm told, uh, joined a swingers organization and posed in the buff and the students caught it and posted it all over the campus so he didn't get tenure. Uh, no. <laughs> and this was in way before Facebook and everything. Oh, else. way before. My <laughs> God, this guy would have been internationally renowned, I'm sure. <laughs> Let me, uh, I want to go back to one thing that you mentioned just in passing, which is the, uh, the Kenton clinics, uh, yeah. just for a second, because I think, uh, for people of, uh, I'm about 40, for people of my generation and younger, everyone knows Kenton as a band leader, but in his day, he was pretty famous for the work he did in colleges and, you know, for really bringing a lot of young people 
kind of up through the system. Could you say something about what those clinics were like? Oh, yeah. They, they were, uh, they started off, I believe, in about 1960 or 61. Uh, I remember going to the clinic right after my senior year and right after my sophomore years in high school. And they were a week long. Um, and at first, I think they started at just two or three places. I think they started at the University of Stores and I mean, University of Connecticut and Stores. And, um, and it might have been Indiana. I can't recall, but, uh, they finally, uh, grew to maybe about uh, 10 locations. I think University of Nevada. Reno and all had one. But what they did, it wasn't just Stan's band. Uh, he brought in some of the people who were, uh, uh, some people were emerging as really good musician educators around this time. Uh, and also some of the folk from Berkeley. Uh, I remember meeting the great Herb Pomeroy, whose uh, band I played in out there uh, when I was a senior in high school. And, uh, but he brought in some really renowned musicians, uh, uh, like, uh, as I mentioned earlier when we were talking, Oliver Nelson. Um, and, uh, uh, I remember Ron Carter being there right after he got out of Eastman and he was, uh, teaching there briefly. And they had people like Alan Dawson, who was also from Berkeley. Uh, and as they were young music educators, uh, Jamie Abersold, who had just gotten out of Indiana, was there. So was Jerry Coker. And, uh, and, and it was a very exciting time. There would be a lot of, uh, students who'd be coming up from North Texas who were already students there who would come to the clinics. And it was very inspiring. And, you know, I got my feet wet with great people. And just those names you listed, I mean, if we were to make a little chart of the, the family tree that springs out from those people you just mentioned, I mean, we're, we quickly cover almost everybody in jazz for about 30 years. I mean, it's pretty right. amazing. Yeah. I, again, I, I was very fortunate, uh, right place, right time. Sure. And, uh, and, and so for those of us who were there, who really, uh, uh, delved into it. It, uh, it, it was a great inspiration. They put us on the right track as we went back to our own little places in the boondocks. So, right. uh, yeah.
1979, you arrive at VCU, and in 1980, founded the Jazz Studies Program. And I, I just want to mm-hmm. point uh, listeners' attention that just a couple days ago, there was an interview on the show with Barry Kernfeld, who edited the New Grove Dictionary of Jazz. Mm-hmm. And at the exact, almost the exact same moment that you were here, he was at Cornell, mm-hmm. and uh, we were talking in that interview about the fact that at that time, the idea of jazz studies was still very foreign to almost every oh, school. Yeah. I mean, jazz was a four-letter word in every it conservatory. Was. Oh, yeah. So I want to talk about how, I mean, it's kind of a crazy idea at that time to say, well, let's start a jazz studies program, and how did you even get it off the ground? How did you get anyone to say, okay, go for it? Well, I was uh, I was hired to teach uh, uh, music theory and uh, uh, and to run the stage bands, and there were two of them, big bands. And uh, prior to my coming here, they were just more or less uh, there as an opportunity for kids to play something outside of concert band material or if they played in an orchestra or maybe a brass quintet or something. And uh, also, uh, the top stage band was also the pep band for the basketball team. I think and, that puts it all in context. Oh, for yeah. Us, yeah. And, and so my, my part of my gig, actually, I was hired. They gave me a, uh, you know, they hired me and said, okay, we're going to give you a stipend, which will include your directing the pep band at all the home <laughs> basketball games and the tournaments. And I said, whatever, you know, I needed the gig. <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyhow, this first year, the caliber of the band uh, really took off, um, and uh, uh, I, by the second semester, uh, kids knew about my writing because I was writing for the group, and uh, they wanted to know if I could give them a class, and so uh, I said, sure, and so the class uh there were again this wasn't a jazz studies program at the time and so we had this little uh topic class jazz arranging and i think there were something like 45 or 50 kids that signed up from they were all types and uh by the second or third week of the semester i think we'd gotten it down to about 6 <laughs> 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 they realized that they were going to have to do some serious work, you right. know? And uh, so, anyhow, and, and with that happening uh, and the real hunger for, uh, for these kids who were just pretty uh, uh, energized uh, by playing in the group, uh, the, we had a very enlightened chairman at that time. Um, uh, and he said, wow, uh, would it be, uh, possible maybe to get a degree program going? And, uh, we sort of cobbled this thing. And also, I, I failed to interject, uh, my very good friend, Skip Gales, uh, who's, uh, you know, there's no finer player in this region, a uh, finer musician uh, than Skip. He and I have been great friends uh, almost since my arrival. Skip came on and taught, in, uh, actually gave a few little master classes and then taught in an adjunct capacity, which he's still doing. <laughs> uh, again, university <laughs> politics and the madness of all that arena we won't get into. But uh, there happened to be a handful 
of marvelous energetic young professionals in this town, Skip being one, uh, a pianist by the name of Bob Hallahan, who uh, was here until last year uh, full, uh, as an adjunct, and now he's full-time over at James Madison University. Clarence C. was here, the bassist, who's on Winton's first album on Columbia, and he was living in town here. And, so, and then there was a really fine drummer by the name of Scott Taylor. And what were these people doing in town before they got hooked into the... They were just, there was a really interesting um, uh, nightlife here. These people were playing either in Richmond or in other towns close by, like Charlottesville, on a very regular basis. And, you know, they weren't, you know, living in any kind of lavish lifestyle, but they but were able to make a living. They were all at that time in their late 20s. I was only 32 when I came here. In fact, I moved to town on my 32nd birthday. But uh, uh, these people had this integrity, an extraordinarily high level of musical uh, competency. And uh, so... Uh, within two years, they were all hired to teach in an adjunct capacity. And uh, then John Durth, uh, who lives in Charlottesville, came here via New York. And who's actually my next interview, as a matter of fact. Oh, he's one of the great people and great musicians I've ever known. Uh, but uh, uh, John uh, came on after a few years, and uh, then Scott left the program. We had another drummer who was from the Tidewater area by the name of Howard Curtis, who now teaches over in Graz. He's a phenomenal drummer. And so um, it, it grew little piece at a time, and as I said, we cobbled this program together essentially around what we were able to do, what, you know, Skip and uh, Bob and the, and the rest of the guys and myself were able to do. But the thing, we didn't start off with this as an idea in mind. I think it was just because of our combined uh, fundamental natures, we were more concerned about creating an environment you know, that was, that had integrity and bore allegiance to the, uh, the essence of the music and as well, how we viewed it, of course. And we were also blessed to have as the Dean of the School of the Arts, which the Department of Music is under, we had an incredibly hip, uh, man by the name of Murray de Pillars, who was very close to Antoinette Handy uh, up at the uh, National Endowment for the Arts. This is before Reagan and his monsters gutted it, you right. know. And we started, uh, along with the, again, newly founded Richmond Jazz Society, which happened to start at virtually the same time I came here. And this is a marvelous group that's really done great things in the community. They, in fact, they just finished their third year, uh, 33rd year. And, uh, presenting shows. Uh, presenting kind of shows, exactly. Promoting the music. And, uh, we had a jazz festival uh, series at the school that, uh, included, uh, my heavens, uh, Sonny Rollins, Max Roach, Dizzy Gillespie, new people at the time, like, uh, whether it be Arthur Blythe, uh, uh, Nat Adderley was here, uh, 
goodness, World Saxophone Quartet was here. Uh, Art Blakey was here. Woody Herman's band came in. Jerry Mulligan's band came in. Uh, and they made, uh, they gave me some loot to bring in people for like a week. The first person I brought in was Jackie Byard. And then I brought wow. in Frank Foster for a week. And then I brought in, um, uh, Benny Carter for a week. And it was, uh, and then Thad came here. Jimmy Heath was here numerous times. Barry Harris came here numerous times. Wow. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and again, the names, I keep, Woody Shaw was here. And <laughs> good God, who else? I mean, just many, many marvelous people. And was this through came here. a combined through the university and the National Endowment for the Arts yes, that brought the funding? Yes, at first it was, and then as that started drying up, uh, the university uh, was working with the Jazz Society, and they'd cobble things together. It uh, it had to diminish uh, from where it was when the NEA had some, you know, some... Of, Actually, some money. Some money, right. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but these things were wonderful. And we had people like uh, Dave Holland. I had Dave in for just about a week. And then, of course, Dave, when he was here, he got hooked up with Nate Smith, who was a student here at the time. You <laughs> and know? the rest of yeah, history, yeah. yeah. So yeah. let me interrupt you for one second to, to go back to the this idea of cobbling the program together. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you had this pool of talent who happened to live in the area. Yeah. But – I assume at some point you must have had to say to the university, okay, these are the classes we're going to teach. This is how this becomes a jazz studies major. What were you looking to for inspiration in terms of actually defining a program and, and figuring out which pieces it had to have for your students to be able to leave and make a living in the jazz Oh, world? boy. That, that, there is no magic formula for that, Jason. I well remember many of the classes that I had at Berkeley which, as I said, 65 to 69, which was a very different environment than from what I understand it is today. Uh, I knew that I could only teach what I knew and what I could do. I don't want to bullshit anybody, you know. Uh, to have a truly ideal program it wouldn't it would it wasn't in the cards for a place this size and the other thing that we had that was ongoing i i left the jazz studies program uh at the end of 2000 i i'm still teaching in the uh department and uh, i still teach the jazz arranging classes and when people want to study privately privately with me i do that and then i coach other kinds of ensembles uh but uh there was a lot of friction, maybe some of which I brought on myself after exasperation. Uh, but if I was teaching a, uh, or was in charge of a non-jazz area, if I was just dealing with 20th century classical chamber music or something, which I'm passionate about or or the, the or Bach cantatas which I'm you know equally passionate about well I would really be wanting to get into the essence of the music uh, and I think Bird hit it best uh when he said first of all you learn the horn secondly you learn the music and third you forget all that shit and just play now that's a lifelong process you never learn the horn 
You never learn the music. And again, the horn can be composition, conducting, whatever it is, whatever your practice is. And, but you're always studying and growing. And it doesn't have to be along any kind of prescribed path. Yeah, we all know that, hey, you know, you know, an F sharp, you know, fully diminished seventh chord has F sharp A, C, and E flat. I mean, here are the other added tones and blah, blah, blah. We know, we all can figure that stuff out and we have to know it very, very quickly. But, you know, forgetting all that stuff and just playing and making music, that's where the risk comes in. And that's a very, uh, it, it isn't, it can't be really uh, uh, quantified. And that's what institutions are about. So whether you're dealing with jazz or whether you're dealing with playing, you know, Ligeti or Bach, it's, you know, it's still this, uh, this beauty of the, of dealing with this thing called music. And you better have experienced a hell of a lot of it and also have a certain realm of talent. When all of these things we can't define really clearly, and it's, this isn't just in the realm of music, but that's what we're talking about right now. And, uh, and so, the, it was very, very interesting. I was on a search committee once for a new chairman of the department. And this person, who was one of the candidates, came in at the end of the day and, and had, had had several meetings with groups of students. And he said every, he's, and he brought this to the committee's attention, he said, I find it really curious that every group of students, there wasn't, there weren't any jazz study students who went and met with this guy. But when he, when he asked the question, what would you want to receive here at VCU? They said they would like to be able to see, receive the same quality of environment and instruction as the jazz students were receiving. I'm not trying to put anyone else down, but this energy was happening.
on this show, we actually talk a lot about jazz education because I, I interview a lot of people who have come up, you know, post the era where you did your apprenticeship with some established master and instead yeah. you went to jazz school, which mm. is kind of what everybody does now. Yeah. And we always talk about this tension between the fact that so much of the, the, uh, text of jazz now, mm. the, of jazz studies is this kind of, you know, this, codification of what happened between about 1940 and about 1965 or mm-hmm. 70. Yeah. And that that's kind of become this is here's the established canon that we have to work with and everybody learns it the same way and everybody learns to play the same sets of scales over the same chords. Yeah. And then how do we deal with actually creating musicians and wow. not just you know not just technicians. Yeah. And it sounds like when you you use the word integrity a lot and environment a lot and it sounds like that was something you were very intensely focused on. How do we we have to create the technicians also? Mm-hmm. But how do we create the environment and the integrity of the program that that makes them more than that? That makes them more than just technicians. It sounds like something that was core to what you were thinking about. Yeah, I one of the things that I think helped with this process was when we had these major people into. Uh, hear the groups, you know, and give their responses or teach a master class or what have you. I, I'm pretty sure that in essence, the, uh, students walked away with saying, well, these major people basically have the same kind of attitude and approach as the people who were teaching here. And that I think gave a certain level of validity for them. And it wasn't that we were always saying that we had all the answers because, you know, you have to look inside yourself. We all have the answers. The answer's there. You just have to go in and, you know, allow them to be known. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember one time we had the entire Basie band. Uh, this was uh, when Frank was directing it, and he came into a rehearsal. The whole band was just sitting in the desks while <laughs> these kids were were playing, and they it, it was just nothing but smiles and very loving, totally appreciative comments, and. Uh, and, and, and to me, that's what it's about. Another individual who was very helpful in my early years here was the great, uh, uh, jazz critic and historian Martin Williams, who, uh, was a very, very close friend of mine. In fact, he helped me, uh, get my seven year series at the Kennedy Center with my professional band. And my student group played at the Smithsonian, uh, you know, several times. And in fact, Along these lines, uh, we did an all Ellington concert back in, I think it was 84, and Jack Towers was, uh, in the audience. Now, Jack recorded the Fargo concert. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is, he's the guy for that, and he's also, of course, a marvelous engineer and very knowledgeable about the music and how it's supposed to sound. And at the end of the performance, Jack came up and, uh, and told me that he was just sitting there crying because he thought he'd never hear the music played that way again. And it's not that we sounded like the Ellington band because no band ever could. Or, uh, but uh, the spirit and uh, uh, I think uh, certainly 
was there and these kids knew that the nuance uh, uh, coupled with that spirit was often as important as the note you were playing, you know. Sure. You know, a, a D flat's a D flat, but the way Rex Stewart or Harry Carney or Sam Nanton would play that D flat, uh, you know, that's, it's all about the context. Sure. It's, tell, it's telling the story. And again, these great people, like I think of Jimmy Heath coming in and telling all of these wonderful sagas, you know, and wow. It, it changed lives. It just, and it was electrifying. Uh, you know, it would have been the same thing in a classical program if we would have had people like, uh, you know, I th think people like today who would have come in if we would have had uh, someone like uh, uh, Baron Boim or Itzhak Perlman or Yogi or Gidon Kramer or, you know, you know, Peter Wispelway or, you know, some people with, uh, you know, real powerful musical personas to come in and just, you know, hey, yeah, you can play scales, you can do this, but that's not making music, that's playing scales. Sure. You know, you know football players don't go out on, you know, Sunday afternoon and do push-ups, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> on wind sprints, you know. Uh, but... Uh, Anyhow, we were very, very fortunate. There were a lot of things that clicked together, but uh, uh, it was about making music. That was the main thing. And it's sort of, I've often used to, you know, try to say about teaching people about sex. Do you want to learn sex from Dr. Ruth or a good hooker, you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming you didn't put that in your presentation to the, uh, as you were forming the jazz studies. Right? No, I didn't. <laughs> Maybe you should have. But I've told the students this many a time. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, the reason I know that I'm here, sitting here talking to you, and that I knew I should come here, was because I've talked to a lot of people who studied with you. Mm-hmm. In the course of this show, and uh, you know, all of them said, "Oh, you know, you definitely, if you're in Richmond, you have to talk to Doug because mm -hmm. you know that's how most of us are here." And one of they they have their stories about you have a few things in common. Uh, all of them talk about generosity of spirit. The other thing they all talk about is that you were intensely focused on people actually doing the work, learning the material, yeah. and that there wasn't a lot of room if you didn't want to come to do the work. You weren't going to make it. Bye-bye. Go sell shoes. Go do something else. That's, I'm so glad you said go sell shoes because that was exactly what one of the people said. Doug would always tell us, hey, you could always go sell shoes. Yeah. But I want to ask you about that attitude because, um, you know, that is a – I think when people sometimes go to see jazz, people who haven't been to a jazz school, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of improvisation and it seems like – I think it can sometimes feel like an undisciplined kind of music. Like mm. there's – uh, it's so because it's difficult to follow and you can't just tell that the musicians are executing a score. I think sometimes you can miss the actual craft behind the art. And so, I mean, could you talk about that a little bit about what you demanded from your students and continue to, to expect? Yeah. Well, in terms of what one does as an improviser or as a writer, we're dealing with 
uh, uh, exploration, you know? And uh, when we talked a little while ago about, you know, needing to know the nuts and bolts, I mean, you have to be a craftsman, uh, and uh, you never get that completely together. You're always learning the craft. As Bird said, you've got to learn the music, you know, in addition to learning the horn, and then, you know, having a band, and we'll just use that approach now. Uh, and... Uh, uh, listening to the muse. Well, there's a lot that goes into that. You better do a lot of listening to the music in general and know what you're, you know, what arena that you're dealing with. Uh, it's a very different thing if, if you're going to be, uh, uh, playing, uh, uh, a 1938, uh, Old Testament Basie chart or, uh, some Ellington jewel from 40 or 41. Uh, or something from Diz's big band. And, and there are different approaches to all of that, or, you know, something that Gill might have done with maybe a smaller context you know, sure. of the individualism. And there's that wonderful new recording that came out, which I'm knocked out by. I just found out about it. A friend of mine gave me a copy, and it's like, damn, Steve's on there, which was real yep. when he's Steve Wilson. <laughs> but, uh, we should mention that's uh, Ryan Truesdale's Ryan Truesdale, yeah. yes, exactly. Bravo to him. Bravo to all those people. God, was that beautiful. Um, but uh, you need to do your homework. It's just like someone who's going to play, you know, play Bach. I'm, sadly, we can't get back and hear the way things were in Leipzig and, you know, in right. 1745, <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, we're, we have pretty good ideas, and we know musicians who have extraordinary levels of integrity, and we can hear the recordings or hear them played live. You know, I've heard Gardner, and I've heard Ton Koopman, and lots of other great people do this stuff, and you can say, these are our models, and you need it when jazz or whatever kind of great music you're doing. And so the students had to do that. And uh, uh, that was something that was uh, encouraged uh, in writing, uh, you know, if you end up using, uh, if, you, if you don't use the tune anywhere in the course of your playing or in your, in your invention, if there's nothing related to it, I, uh, un unless you're of a, an extremely high caliber of, uh, creative capacity, I'm, I often, you know, really wonder uh, if the student knows what they're doing. If something's not being developed, that's, that's, uh, that's a real concern. Uh, again, you can have all kinds of uh, facility on your instrument, but if you're not making a statement, if uh, again, an old story from Jimmy Heath about traveling on jazz at the Philharmonic uh, bus, and Lester Young was sitting in the front of the bus, and there's a young upstart tenor player in the back who was annoying everybody with all his, you know, extraordinarily fast arpeggios. The prince gets up and goes to the back and says, But baby, can you tell me a story? <laughs> You know, and um, it's it's really about that. It's it's about storytelling, and it and I don't think it's too much different, Jason, than when people go to a symphony concert and they want to hear Mozart. Well, they just don't want to hear 
any Mozart. They just want to hear the Mozart that they've heard 10,000 times. They want to go hear the Jupiter Symphony or the Hafner Symphony. You know, you don't want to go play, you know, Symphony Number no. 29 for them. Or, you know, with Beethoven, they don't want to go hear the Second Symphony. They want to hear the Fifth Symphony or the Eroica or, you know, the Ninth, maybe. They don't want to hear the Eighth, you know? Uh, and, and, and it's not, and jazz will sound foreign, sadly, to most of these people who can't listen. And if they can't listen, they should just stay away. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, again, I go into symphony concerts and I just, I sit there in this sea of white hair, of course, which I have now too, with a little left of it. But, uh, uh, you know, most of these people are just, you know, they're zen, you know. God bless them sitting in there with, you know, with, uh, people who need to change their depends and, uh, <laughs> sleeping, sleeping away to, uh, to Mahler or whatever. And I just go, Oh my goodness. What's, <laughs> what's this come to? <laughs> so I don't think it's unique to jazz. I think it's sure. I, I, it's sadly that people aren't curious. And in many times, I think they're not shown how to listen. Like, isn't this wonderful that we have this little ditty, the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? And I mean, Lenny Bernstein used to do this all the time on the young people's concerts, you know, in the early 60s, and show how this little, you know, this little four-note, uh, you know, motif just travels all over. And there could be some other little things that say, wow, do you, every time you hear it, get wow, and then they learn how to follow, and... And then they learn how to sing along, and then they can get comfortable. It, it, it's because I think it's so foreign to them. Mm. It's really, really foreign. And uh, I do think uh, that uh, creative musicians, you know, jazz musicians, classical musicians, painters, playwrights, whomever, I think sometimes it could be very, very helpful to uh, maybe try to educate your audience as we go along and uh, I, I think it's necessary but but the kids at VCU we had to uh, I when they were playing their written parts they had to play it with spirit and nuance and uh, uh, it was demand you mm-hmm. know you, you just don't play notes and rhythms that's that's tedious, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
let me turn aside now from the education component and talk about uh, other factors of your life. And I'm particularly interested in hearing about uh, the game, the ensemble that you ran for so many years. Will you talk about that? Oh, my pleasure. Um, uh, game stands for Great American Music Ensemble, and that doesn't have anything to do with, you know, attitude. It has to do with the fact that we were playing great American music. And that's what it was there for. And... Uh, uh, it started off as uh, almost all people who were here from Richmond, uh, some former students, a couple on occasion would be current students and skip in the great rhythm section that I talked about. And, uh, and then uh, before its demise, after roughly 20 years, we... Uh, 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 players from D.C., Baltimore, and uh, other, you know, surrounding areas came as uh, regular members in the group. Uh, so it was something that evolved as well. We started off just playing uh, for uh, 35 bucks a man one night a week out at the local Hyatt and, uh, uh, and had a good fellow in town who was... Uh, encouraged me to do this he and skip uh he was uh, one of as a frank sinatra like singer and so i did record copies of you know sinatra and big bands and that type of thing plus of that I'd start doing my own stuff but then uh martin williams uh, uh heard the band and asked if we'd do a concert at the kennedy center excuse me not the kennedy center the smithsonian where he was uh employed and uh, we did, and it was very successful. And I, as I said, I also did concerts there with VCU. I did an uh, evening, say, of Monk's music, where I you know, did this uh, arrangements on Thelonious's uh, stuff, and I treated it in a very different kind of way, I guess. <laughs> uh, they weren't standard big band charts by any stretch. Uh, but uh, anyhow... Uh, we, uh, we did Ellington concerts and then we, uh, uh, Martin, uh, uh, knew, uh, some of the administrators over at the Kennedy Center and especially Lois Howard, who was in charge of the Terrace Theater. And she was also the, I think she was the administrative director of the National Symphony, uh, at the same time. But, uh, uh, we ended up uh, playing there for seven years. We did four concerts a year. Always uh, one of the four concerts would have to be uh, an Ellington performance, and it would usually have, you know, a, a theme or maybe a couple of suites we'd play. Uh, and uh, we using all, uh, Duke's own arrangements. Duke's, or, oh, okay. oh, always, always. No, the, the his own his own stuff. And sometimes there'd have to be transcriptions because this uh, the Smithsonian uh, hadn't. Uh, received the, uh, the, uh, the, the great donation that the Ellington family gave to them. But uh, we did an Ellington show. We'd always do a tunesmith, you know, from the Great American Songbook, you know, Gershwin, Rogers, Porter, etc. And I would always write the charts on that, or write most of the charts. Uh, and we'd usually have a great vocalist with us. We had uh, uh, Ethel Ennis sing with us uh, numerous times, and then uh, Renee Marie is uh, a good friend. In fact, Renee didn't sing. Oh, that's right. Uh, we had Ronnie Ross uh, uh, sing with us. She was a 
you know, she's since passed away. Uh, excuse me, Ronnie Wells. Ronnie Wells. Ronnie Ross, man. Ronnie Ross, the Barry player from <laughs> yeah. England. Jeez. Woo. Sorry about that. That's this almost 65-year-old cranium uh, not functioning too well. But, uh, and... Uh, and then we'd do uh, music uh, uh, with a guest, usually. We had many wonderful guests come in and play with us. And then we'd do a, another jazz master. Sometimes I'd do arrangements on that, like whether it be Monk or Mingus, uh, Jelly Roll, uh, uh, you know, Diz, Fattis came in. That was sort of two birds with one stone. Uh, <laughs> uh Maybe pun intended on that, <laughs> uh, but anyhow, um, and and then uh, Martin passed away in '92, and then Murray Horwitz, who was then the uh, vice president for cultural programming at NPR, came in was and was co-producer with me for the series, and we did a few things there also for the National Symphony, where we played in the big hall, and uh, and that was very very nice. I remember doing a thing there with Milt Hinton. That was a lot of fun. And then another one with uh, the great Joe Kennedy. And uh, Ethel sang on both those programs, I remember. And uh, I wrote most of the charts for her. And uh, so uh, we did that. And, we, you know, we did some other concerts. Uh, I remember one of the real treats we did was on what was called Lewis's 90th birthday back in 1990. <laughs> and they did a thing on NPR, nationally broadcast. And they had uh, Arvel Shaw's... Uh, uh, Armstrong All Stars do a third of it, and they had the Vanguard Orchestra do Thad's uh, Suite for Pops, and they uh, asked us. I wrote this new uh, suite for Lewis, and, uh, and so we did that. And uh, we had John Faddis and Joe Kennedy play with us also on that uh, ditty. So that was it. That's great. Will you talk about what what excites you about arranging for large ensembles? What is it that that grabs you? or grabbed you maybe even as far back as Berkeley when you first realized that was one of the things um, you'd like to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I've always loved uh, one of the main elements in music that really uh, entices me is color. You know, as I said, the harmony muted trumpet was the thing that grabbed me when I first was a kid for some reason, that sound. And then, of course, you become far more aware and say, oh, wow, that's Miles' sound, or that's Ray Nance's sound, or whomever, you know. And, uh, uh, and, and in classical music, my first real love in classical music was Ravel. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's been a standard thing for jazz musicians to get into classical music, or vice versa, classical music musicians who get into jazz. People that love Ravel or Debussy, that whole, you know, early 20th century thing. Sure. Of course, Stravinsky was influenced that, you know, the Rimsky uh, thing, which wasn't the French impressing, but it's color, you know. And so, uh, and then you hear, uh, you know, Ellington, even though he wasn't really aware of any of these things, but you hear someone who was preoccupied with experimentations and tone color. I mean, there are other things too. I mean, you know, all the other parameters sure. we talk about. For, for a, uh, a lay audience, but a very intelligent one, can you talk about how you're using the word color in this context? Uh, it's, it's basically, uh, how individual or groups of instruments are combined, uh, uh, and, and instead of, I, I mean, just as a real simple, uh, way of looking at, uh, say, an Ellington, uh, uh, score, you might find a moment 
with him writing for saxophones, where Harry Carney, his baritone saxophonist, which would normally be at the bottom because we have two altos, two tenors, and a baritone, a standard five-person saxophone section. Well, there might be a moment that Harry Carney is playing at the top because he really, really loves the sonority, the color of the baritone playing in its upper register, which is very different than the alto saxophone playing in its middle register. Sure. And that's, wow, wow. or maybe you hear the tenor there. And then there are ways, instead of just dealing from top to bottom in terms of scoring, say the top note is a uh, a a uh, B on a, uh, uh, I don't know, a, 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 a C sharp minor ninth chord. We have B, G sharp, E, D sharp, and C sharp, or something like that. And we can change the, you know, the spread of the voicing. But instead of scoring it, you know, one group, then now we go to the next chord and we have top one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four. Well, we make different lines out of that, like Bach would do in his chorales, you know. Duke would be doing this kind of thing, not having any idea of Bach chorales. He had his own genius to rely upon, and so he would make individual lines come out. And you would hear these colors. And also another well-known ditty of Duke, the best-known one, of course, is the Mood Indigo Trio. Sure. Of course, the clarinet, it's clarinet, uh, muted trumpet, and muted trombone. And normally, the clarinets play, can play the highest notes. You put them at the top. No, do put them at the bottom. And the reason why is because he loved that low sonority. And he had the trombone scored way up high, very close to the trumpet, and have a, usually had a lot of spread between the uh, this the, the trombone voice and the, and the clarinet voice. And so you hear this color here. And then sometimes when we combine uh, uh, two or more instruments on a single part and you say, wow, what is that sounding? You say, wow, that sounds really an alto flute, a cup-muted trombone playing at his very high <laughs> register and, you know, and a bass clarinet or something. And you say, that they're playing the same line, but wow, isn't that a gorgeous... It's, it's just like taking different colors of paint and putting them together. Sure. And we have a new color. And so this is one thing. I mean, it, it's a, a thing that really excites me, yeah. is color. But it's also really, I think even more now for me, it's the exploration of form and and developing an idea. I've written... Uh, uh, written a couple large things lately for uh, the last really large thing I did was, uh, we did an Ankara Turkey initially for, uh, symphony orchestra, jazz octet, and kanun. Uh, it's a 30 minute piece and it's based on a Turkish folk song. I have no idea what a kanun is. A kanun is, uh, is uh, almost like an auto harp okay. kind of instrument. It's, uh, played with these, um, uh, like these metal, uh, uh, finger picks. Okay. And, uh, uh, to hear the really great Turkish canoon players is, it's a marvel. These guys are just true virtuosos. And I'd never heard of a canoon before I wrote this thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems exciting, though, in and of itself, because it, I mean, just going back to what you were saying about how you never stop learning. I mean, here's an example where there's a, an instrument that, 
you never listened to or never even yeah. heard of. And all of a sudden you have to figure out, not only do I have to write the music for this, I have to actually figure out the mechanics of how this thing works because someone has to perform this thing. Exactly, exactly. And it was very interesting when I was working with this canoon player for the first time uh, a couple of weeks before we had it premiered over in uh, Ankara. And this guy read very little music and he spoke no English and so uh, <laughs> it was great communication <laughs> but I'd sing the line and he'd get the idea and he was a, such a brilliant musician and quick learn and it was what he did was marvelous sure. you know was it exactly what I wrote no and it was better <laughs> <laughs> but then That's I learned great. from Duke and again this is how we all learn from one another but Duke had experiences, not the same kind, of course, but he'd say, you know, someone in this band would do something different than he wrote. And he's, oh, don't play what I wrote. Do that. I like (laughs) that. (laughs) So that's great. That's that's really great. And then I did another thing for a guy who teaches with me at VCU, this marvelous trumpet player, Rex Richardson. And um, uh, we recorded uh, this piece. I call it the Intercontinental Concerto. Oh, this is the piece that's based on germs and... Guns and whatever that oh, book oh, is, right? Yeah. Or this Guns, is a whole, germs, yeah. and steel, yeah. And my, my son had given me that book. It's by Jared Diamond, who won the Pulitzer Prize for it. And I'd finished reading that. <laughs> Forgive me, Jared, for not being... It's a three-word title, and I couldn't remember. <laughs> I think I got one of them. <laughs> All right. That's, I wouldn't have known it otherwise if my son hadn't given me the book. I'm, you know. This is why I stick to jazz. I don't know hey. anything about literature. So but, uh, uh, yeah... Uh, Rex asked me to write a, a piece for him, and uh, I'd finished this, and you know, just you know, we get idea. Who knows where ideas come from? They come from the strangest spot. And I thought, uh, wow, writing a piece uh, based on uh, you know the uh, sort of the evolution of man going from one continent to the next. Now, and I started listening to a whole lot of world musics that I'd never heard, like Jack, Japanese gakaku music. I'd never heard gakaku music. I mean, I'd never really heard uh, certain types of African musics. I mean, some, yes. Sure. Uh, but I was, I listened a lot and then some, you know, Aborigine music. And uh, uh, for North and South America, I, I, you know, I listened, you know, a whole lot there. But, uh, but I ended up using an, an Ernesto Nazareth, who I was never aware of uh, before I started on this project, I used a little tune of his that he he was sort of, uh, they've compared him to Scott Joplin mm. because it was right around the same time. And so um, I utilized uh, all of these uh, uh, marvelous sources, and I even used a, a Bach chorale for Europe, but Bach didn't write the melody. Somebody else, some anonymous cat wrote the melody, <laughs> and uh, I used part, only part of his harmonization at the very end. And but I used, I wrote another chorale against it, so we have a double chorale.
when you're taking music or musical inspiration from sources that, you know, obviously there's a you have enough time to become cursorily familiar with mm-hmm. gagaku music, for example. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so you're, those you're people spend their entire their lives entire life. right, you're, you're exactly. scratching the surface. It's sort of like I remember when Duke wrote. Duke and Billy wrote Far East Suite, you right. know, the Latin Americans. You know, it's their take. That's all you can do. We're sure. incredibly uh, uh, pretentiously obnoxious <laughs> to to go around trying to be think, you know, you know, selling ourselves as being any kind of way authentic. Sure. You know? So what do you what do you take from something like that? What what do you, you hear the music and then you say, okay, here's how I'm going to then put this through my own brain and out comes something else. But what is the piece that you're Taking what's the element that? Well, for the Gakaku, for example, uh, that I I wrote the whole thing myself, but I actually I, I used a blues form, uh, <laughs> if you can hear it in there, but you probably can't. Uh, but it was uh, when we listen to any kind of music, Jason. I think uh, we say, "Wow." What is going on here? And this is what I try to impart to my students. I said, in the arranging classes, I said, I can't tell you what music is going to be like that you're going to encounter tomorrow or 10 years from now. You, you you know, you're going to, I said, I had the right music when I lived in Atlanta and they gave me they gave me, they said, hey, we want uh, each of these things to be two and a half to three minutes long, string section and blood, four French horns and a harp or whatever the hell it was. And here's a Crystal Gale tune, here's a Billy Joel tune, and here's something, I, whatever. <laughs> and I said, okay, I've heard music around my parents, you know, uh, our middle class household for all these years that my mother, when she was dusting, would listen to this music that I hated. And I said, but now I have to sit down and figure out what it is that I, that I'm hearing. I don't want to read it out of a book. Right. You know, again, this is maybe about, we're doing full circle right now. Sure. Uh, because it's teaching the students about, hey, how we're going to play in an Ellington style, or here's a Thad Jones thing, and what's happening here, why the rhythms, what's going on with the rhythm section, etc. And then you do your best to interpret this long, you, you cannot be Richard Davis and Rowan Hanna and Mel Lewis. I mean, you just can't. Nobody can. You have to say what the essence of this is. And this is what I would do, say, in Gakaku music. I could talk about, uh, these gestures that would be going on with music where there would just be a, a single tone or a, a you know, several tones being struck simultaneously, which wouldn't be, you know, a standard Western chord. And you would hear this, a color that would, you would just hit and you would listen to it. And then there'd be silence and you would say, wow, what was that? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and then you would hear melody being played. Everybody would have the melody and they'd be playing it sort of at the same tempo and, but not really at the same time. And it would be a simple melody. And it, would it always be, quote, in tune to our ears? I don't, I wrote five soprano saxophones on that. 
<laughs> just because you're a sadist? Is that the <laughs> I've done that before. I did that on a monk tune. And in fact, the, the, the read section on the monk tune had, they all played soprano, and then their double, I had three piccolos and two berries. <laughs> but I wasn't looking for squeaky cleanness. I really wasn't. And did I want the thing to be grossly out of tune? No. But I was not concerned with intonation the way, you know, if we were dealing with a little uh, Mahler-esque delicate passage where you'd say, oh, this thing really has to be crystal clear. Sure. That wasn't the purpose of this. So sonorities and musics can have, you know, different focuses. Mm. And I, I think that has to be understood and appreciated. I, I, I was listening yesterday to a little YouTube thing that they had, uh, I, I think it, uh, it was a Thad tune, but it was the Vanguard Orchestra. Mean what you say? Yes, uh, I was going to say yeah, I can sing yeah, that tune too, yeah, but I can't think of the yeah, title. And, and there was a this trumpet player, Scott uh, Windholt. Is that his? Uh, name? Yeah, yeah, Scott Windholt. Yeah, and it was a beautiful solo. And then I started reading some comments. And if I remember right, there was some bonehead that was talking about him missing notes. You know, it's the same kind of shit that I remember reading about Miles 60 years ago, you know, some idiot. And it's missing a note, you know. And I'm like, God, you, you really belong in music school. <laughs> <laughs> you do quite well. <laughs> But uh, but I just want to make sure you follow that thought to the end. Uh, it's not a it's not about missing the note. But what is it about? Is it's that? about telling the story. Right. It's about telling the story. And uh, and if we hear a great actor or actress um, uh, performing uh, on stage, uh, and they happen to stutter or stammer. You don't say, and, and yet their whole performance is riveting, or you can't quite understand a word, and then you start getting a hair up your butt about, you know, elocution, please. Right. Uh, you know? <laughs> it's like, God, really? Again, this gets back to Dr. Ruth. Uh, right. It's, you know, it's not, it, it's about some getting in touch with these all important uh, elements of humanity, of our humanity. And uh, anyhow, my guest is Doug Richards. It's it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm I'm so glad that uh, your former students said I should I should get in touch with you because it's really been a joy to hear your thoughts on the music. I thank you for taking the time. Oh, Jason, it was absolutely wonderful. What an enjoyable time it was for me. Thanks, man.
That's music from one of the Virginia Commonwealth University big bands directed by Doug Richards, who is my guest today. Thanks to Doug. Thanks also to everybody in Richmond. This was the last interview from the Richmond, Virginia set of interviews, and uh, the next couple will be from Charlottesville, Virginia. So stay tuned for those. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do, if you would, become a member of the show at thejazzsession.com slash join or support the tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour. Join the mailing list at thejazzsession.com. Check out the daily diaries at jasoncrane.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. And then get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.